Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But through the magic of digital distancing, he's our guest, actor and musician, Danny Horn. Though you might hear laughing, spinning, swinging madly across the sun, it's not aimed at anyone. It's just escaping on the run. And but for the sky, there are no fences facing. And if you hear vague traces of skipping reels of rhyme to your tambourine in time, it's just a ragged clown behind. I wouldn't pay it any mind. It's just a shadow you're seeing that he's chasing. Thank you, Danny. Um, I wouldn't pay it any mind jumped out at me. I thought all this stuff that he's telling you, and he goes, yeah, I wouldn't pay it any mind. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, what I like about this passage, it often gets overlooked. Um, people tend to focus on the, the transcendent final verse of that song, the one that just is just incredible. And really, if Billy Bragg hadn't got there first, I would have read that section out. But this whole song is is an amazing thing because it's simultaneously like him being quite incredibly confident with his imagery. He's really sort of leaning into that rainbow flashing chain of images. But it's also quite a humble song. It's about him just trying to connect. I think it's a song about songwriting. I mean, there's a lot of different theories about this and I've, I've heard other people say this as well, but as a songwriter myself, this is, I think, this is him trying to connect to that something that's out there where the songs are. I mean, I think Dylan said it before, the songs, you know, he doesn't feel like he even writes the songs. The songs are all there and he's got to almost pluck them out of the air. I think the tambourine man is the songs and he's chasing them. And it's almost like just a release of the body and mind and spirit. You just got to kind of go somewhere else and hook onto it and see if it could drag you along. And he's just this ragged clown behind this kind of image and he's all he wants just ignore me i'm just here trying to grab hold of anything you've got like a pied piper almost have you been influenced by say the song the song mr tambourine man to, to try to to write like dylan like that? well i mean i started writing songs when i was about 16 solely because of bob dylan um he was the reason i started strumming a guitar like so many people you know they, they get a guitar and they try and become little dylans and it takes a few attempts to realize that you can't just try and do that. And in the end, I mean, songwriting is such a strange sort of middle ground art form anyway. You can't try and do it. It's just got to sort of happen. And that's what I think this Tambourine Man song is about. It's that kind of, it's, if you're trying to do it, it's not going to happen. You've got to almost release yourself. My, his hand's too numb to, so his toe's too numb to step. Uh, he's completely given himself over to something else it's it's almost like meditation the word weariness jumps out at me as well i i you know the word weariness is in mrs tambourine man my weariness amazes me there's so now i'm leaving and i'm weary as hell in with god on mm. our side there's also lay down your weary tune but weary as hell is um a phrase that pops up in one of your songs too i don't know if, if that was a deliberate thing whether that's just one of those things that percolated through uh, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, actually, that song that I've written is called Boy Awake, and that's it's not a million miles from what Bob Dylan is talking about there. I was trying to talk about losing yourself to something else, something higher, something that you can't put your finger on. But it certainly wasn't intentional. It's funny how these things jump jump out at you. If you listen to a song a hundred times, it's bound to get yeah, in there somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Dylan, I mean, I, I'm listen to so much Bob Dylan that there must be some osmosis going on when it comes to songwriting. He's always going to be there. I mean, I think most things in my adult life have probably 
been influenced by Bob Dylan accidentally one way or another. Did you hear him coming out of your parents' uh, record player or something? Where did you yeah. first discover it? Yeah, I was, um, he was always there. Uh, my parents are huge Bob Dylan fans, so he was always there waiting. And, uh, you know, naturally when I was a kid, I rejected it. I completely rebelled against it. I thought this guy sounds dreadful. And I was sort of getting into punk rock thinking this is where it's at, you know, like Green Day and things. And I think something clicked when I was about 14. I was having bass guitar lessons at the time. And I was, uh, I think my dad was driving me through Yorkshire to get there. And it was hurricane, funnily enough. And I I'd had an interest in acting already. And so I was drawn to stories. And he just sort of said, listen to the story. Just, you know, I know, I know that you're going to want to reject this because <laughs> I'm playing it for you. But just yeah. listen to the story. And it was one of those moments. So I thought, wow, I've never heard anything like this. And then I said, all right, well, what's the next song I should listen to? Which was Like a Rolling Stone. And I think Bruce Springsteen said it best. He said when he heard the snare at the beginning of that song, it was like someone kicked down the doors of his mind. And that's exactly what it was like for me. It was like seeing new colours. It was, you know, and you open a door in your mind and what you find in there is a thousand more doors. It's just, wow, I didn't realise there was so much more to sort of soak up here and and, and understand or, or and so many more questions to be asked about everything be it music or lyrics or the images that they conjure and I became really intensely into Bob Dylan at the age of 15 14 and it's really all I listened to for years I was and I tried to sort of do my own born again Dylanism I remember when I was in sixth form we had this uh, sort of common room which was always had music on it was usually the popular kids playing things I you know I couldn't really understand and occasionally I would try and slip a Dylan CD in there it would usually last about you know eight seconds before it went off and I realized around this point there's no you know this is just my own experience I can't try and force it on other people either they want to uh, receive it like I did or they don't and you also got into the 60s I believe you know like you'd know a lot about the period did that really turn you on yeah, I was just sort of fascinated, certainly initially by the 60s, that um, you know, the counterculture movement, the fact that suddenly this generation had something to say that perhaps, well, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a freer way than their parents had. And I was inspired by this, you know, the, the social commentary side of things. I was also inspired by the slightly um, hedonistic elements of it. You know, certainly when I was younger, I just liked the idea that they were, they were just cutting away from the societal structures that are still there, but certainly held on to their parents, the war generation more. It was this freedom. And perhaps, you know, I'm, I was never there. I was born in the 80s. So I think it's very easy to look back with this kind of idealistic view. But I was really interested in, in the music and the British invasion as well. And being born um, when you were, I've done my maths here, I reckon Tempest came out when you were in your early 20s. So, so was, was there a moment when contemporary Dylan joined with your perception of him up to that point? Yeah, well, I was, so I was, it was Modern Times. That was the first Dylan album to come out when I was into Dylan. And I just absolutely loved it. I um, was confused by it initially because I'd been listening almost solely to 60s Dylan at that point. I was, gosh, 16, I think. And... It was this whole different thing. It's this kind of world-weary kind of... Uh, although there's this kind of joy in that album as well. And also the images aren't as exciting and dangerous and scary uh, as some of the 60s stuff. Yeah. But 
it's had a timelessness. You know, Nettie Moore using the word Oa, like Shakespeare, which I was studying at the time for school and for drama mm. school auditions and things. He somehow he just conjured up a past that maybe never even existed, but it felt more real than anything that was going on in you know now in my life then anyway. And Nettie Moore feels like a sort of ode to a time that has died or a time that has passed, doesn't it? Much more than than a person, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's what he does so well generally is he conjures up a past that I feel, and this is what folk music does anyway, especially, um, you know, folklore sort of stuff. These are stories about things that never really existed. They're full of archetypes, but somehow they paint much clearer pictures to me than anything more historically accurate. They, 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 it's the same as Shakespeare. They, these broad brushstroke images of these sort of archaic times. It's like, well, Basement Tapes is the best example of that, I think. Mm. It's, you know, I don't think there were, was ever really an old twisted America full of these sideshows and characters like, like he sings about. But somehow that connects to a, a, a truth that actual reading of the histories because it's so you know there's so much more to it in reality it feels like this was the past this strange twisted distorted almost quite vaudevillian world that he conjures up and that's what folk music does in general and I think Dylan was probably inspired by that when he first got into the folk scene well music makes it sound more um not just more interesting, but more harmless as well. I think that you look at some of the murder ballad genre and you, some of those songs that kind of were in his mind when he was maybe recording the basement tapes, you know, when he, I think he alludes to songs about roses growing out of people's brains and all these sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. um, but you listen to a song like um, Delia, which he covered on, on world gone wrong and, and has been kind of changed over the years and has become Delia's gone by Johnny Cash and all this. It's this, fantastic murder ballad you know about a a a man who who shot his woman down and all this but you actually you actually read the story it's about a teenager gunning down his teenage girlfriend at a party in front of everyone i forget why i think she'd either betrayed him or she'd got pregnant or something and it's a really nasty unpleasant story Mm. that the the kind of you know the the genre of folk music mythologizes and makes it seem like this this uh this epic story but it's just a sordid nasty little tale and that's interesting because people don't mind when it's that old. But for example, when he did Joey um, on mm. Desire, he essentially did that with a with a modern figure because Joey yeah. Gallo was a, was a monster by all accounts. Yeah. He was mm. horrible, completely unredeemable. But he decided to make a give him the folk treatment almost and, and yeah. glor- glorify him. And some people were really angry about that, and they still are. Yeah, well, I personally but find really, it a he bit, was just a doing a sickening song. Yeah, but it's you, you've yeah, got to yeah. get into. Dylan's the, the carnival thing is I think it, it's it's in his head still I think he sort of sees I can just see sort of banners flying and freaks and little people yeah he occupies a different space doesn't he than anyone else seems to and he's changed so much throughout his career but he's always wherever he is it seems like his own space you know I don't feel like anyone else is in there with him no exactly I was I was watching a bit of Rolling Thunder this morning just for fun the Scorsese um film and you know he's there in the center of the stage and he's he's looking around at everybody but i just get the feeling he's on another planet it's quite clear that he's on another planet people are treating him like he's on another planet i've never seen him look more alone than in that footage was it live aid or something recordings uh feed the world i can't remember what it was Um, and he's surrounded by these people and he looks like he's just got a thousand yards stare (laughs) 
it's the, the when he sings about loneliness, you you it's got a different dimension. It, it seems to me. There's Bob Dylan loneliness, which is another. Yeah, it feels like whenever he talks about anything, there's a few more angles to it. It's more hex, like a hexagon rather than a square, isn't it? Yeah, I guess that's what happens if you listen to a lot of Hank Williams. You know, I mean, there's the the, 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 the mm. solitary kind of nature of music like that is going to rub off on you. Absolutely, and Robert Johnson as well. That kind of hauntedness. Yeah. Was there ever any period when you you had to delve back, or you had the privilege of delving back into many many eras of of Dylan, uh, more than most you know people who who were older than you? So was there any era that you found you couldn't enter, or did you did you take I, it all on its own terms? And even the born again what Christian the, era, say for, for instance. Hmm, I quite like some of the born again Christian stuff actually. Yeah. I also quite like some of the Sinatra stuff, but. I know that I'm not necessarily got a huge amount of support around that with my other friends. Some of my friends call me a Dylan apologist when I talk about these sort of things. <laughs> um, what's great about coming into Bob Dylan, you know, uh, as a younger man now is that it's all there waiting for me. Um, mm. It's not like I have to wait and see what the next thing's going to be because it's already there. And there's not much I haven't sort of investigated now, but there is, there's still areas of his career that I don't know yet, you know. And like most people, when I discovered him, I was obsessed with the early stuff, especially the uh, protest stuff initially. I just, I'd never heard anyone manage to articulate, themse- articulate themselves about something they care about and make it rhyme and make it tuneful and exciting and fresh. And, and it made me think, and nothing, music hadn't really done that before. And then I... I got a little bit older, you know, you, you smoke a joint around the back of the bike sheds and suddenly you're listening to the lyrics of Hey Mr. Tambourine Man and, or or, um, or any of that stuff, you know, Visions of Johanna. And, and you, you're having your, these little explosions within your brain thinking, God, it's so much more, man. Um, and then what's interesting now is I'm 31 and I'm very, very into the sort of new morning phase where he's about the same age and... Suddenly, you know, I've lived in London. I've been chasing this acting and music thing for a long time, but I've got this pull now to the countryside, which is where I'm from originally. Um, I just want to, you know, a couple of kids. That's, that must be what it's all about. Um, that That's something that I'm finding more comforting than anything else at the moment. You don't have a motorcycle, do you? <laughs> uh, no, no, just, I don't. just want to yeah, yeah. be careful. Be careful. Check the <laughs> I should mention, I just want to mention the fact that you played uh, Ray Davis in Sunny Afternoon, the Kinks musical in the West End. And I was listening, knowing that, uh, I was listening to uh, Dylan and Ray Davis this morning, trying to find some sort of place where they intersected. And I thought that would be very clever if I could find that. But I couldn't. I couldn't find any place they intersected. (laughs) Uh, Did Did you? Yeah, I've put some thought into this. Uh, there's, first of all, comparing Shakespeare and Dylan is a bit like uh, comparing sort of Philip Larkin and Shakespeare, in my mind. They're both great, but they both occupy completely different spaces. I, I love what Ray Davis does. I've been a huge fan of his since I was young. He was my favourite British lyricist. Um, and not so much the earlier stuff, uh, you know, that you really got me and all day and all the night, which is great, exciting music. But Ray was steeped in a vaudeville musical uh, culture. And really, that's what he always wanted to gravitate back towards. I'd say Bob more so with the folk and the you know rock and roll blues. One thing they do have in common is they're both completely unfazed by whatever anybody else thinks about them. They mm. It seems like neither of them have got 
the slightest desire to please anyone. And uh, that can sometimes manifest, manifest itself in quite a cruel way. And I love Ray Davis. I've worked quite closely with him, but you know, he doesn't necessarily make it easy for you. Um, you, if you ask him a question he thinks is, you know, beneath him or stupid, he'll just won't answer it or he'll let you know just with a look that, you know, you're going down the wrong alleyway here. <laughs> uh, he's a little bit strange, like I think Bob is as well. Like he's got a mercurial way of thinking. I found when I was playing him and I want to ask him questions about himself in order to understand where his head might be or, or whatever for a scene. I found if I asked him what he was experiencing at the time, he would just sort of look at me blankly. But if I asked about the character of Ray Davis as if it wasn't him, he would get this mischievous sort of look on his face and he'd start talking about the character of Ray Davis. So I might uh, <laughs> phrase a question like, uh, this character of Ray, he's a weird one, isn't he? I can't quite understand what he's thinking. What do you think about this mm -hmm. character of Ray? And he'd be like, well, yeah, I think this character of Ray is quite an interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he, he doesn't view the world in a you know in, in a way in the same way that a lot of other people do and I think Dylan definitely has probably got a similar outlook I yeah. also have one other uh thing that I think they have in common and this is about two albums that well an album that each of them made around the same time uh 1967 for Bob and 1968 for the Kinks um this is in a time of flower power and you know they're sort of Vietnam War was kicking off and if, if you're an artist you didn't have something to say about that people could get quite angry and at that time Dylan did John Wesley Harding which was just you know seemingly about none of that he was completely unfazed by this huge countercultural movement he went and did this concise short focused sort of biblical piece of an archetypal Americana and people called him a deserter for it. Some people were really unhappy. They wanted him to go back to pointing fingers and, you know, being the Bob Dylan that they'd all built up in their minds. Mm. At the same time, the Kinks decided to make an album called Village Green Preservation Society, which is, in a strange sort of way, an English version of that album. It's about an archetypal version of England that's never really existed, full of strange characters uh, like Johnny Thunder or Walter who he sings about, or this whole list of people in the, the title track. And people, well, it didn't sell because people, that's not what people wanted. People were after something that was a reflection of what they were reading in the newspapers or hearing in the streets or in the bars. And they both made these albums that I always kind of think of them in the same way. They're these love letters to versions of their own countries that never existed. They're quite merciless as well, aren't they, uh -huh. Like they're really cutting. Um, oh yeah, I, then... I know that uh, one of my favorite tracks on um, uh, Village Green uh, Preservation Society is uh, "Big Sky." It's it's almost like a Randy Newman song. That song, it's like mm. "Big Sky" is seems to me to be God, or, yeah. or or the thing, some thing that that sees everything and really just doesn't give a shit. He's too busy. Yeah, he's distracted. He you know yeah, but he's not interested. Sort of God. Yeah, big sky looks down, and all the little people looking up at the big sky. I mean, that's that's it, really, isn't it? It's... That's it. And, and whereas uh, actually, John Wesley Harding does have this weird, uh, deep religious feel to it, but you don't get the mm. feeling there's any salvation, really. So in a way, they they are kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an apocalyptic feel. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm also intrigued as to what Dylan thought of uh, You Really Got Me, because that's 1964. That's really mm. the first heavy guitar-based riff in a pop song, you know, much noisier than anything else that was going on at the time. Um, I think it predates the Rolling Stones in, in that sort of kind of sound, and it certainly predates Dylan's electric conversion by a good year. And he must have heard that and thought, ooh, that sounds great. Yeah, I think everyone who heard that was kind of blown away because no one had heard that noise. Um, there's the famous story about Dave Davis sticking knitting needles into his guitar amp to get the fuzzy sound yeah. on the guitar. And, you know, essentially they invented heavy metal with that one track. And mm -hmm. that's the funny thing about Ray is Ray never wanted to do that kind of thing. He liked um, When I'm Cleaning Windows and songs like this. He, <laughs> he, he, he never had it in his mind to be some kind of dangerous rock star. And he was never any good at it either. He, he was completely uncomfortable in that situation. Unlike his brother, Dave, who lapped it up and took all the drugs and slept with all the, you know, the groupies. Ray would, well, he got married at 20 and had a kid at 21 and, and would hide away and have a nervous breakdown in hotel rooms. And, and he wasn't cut out for that world. Yeah, I mean, I saw that, I remember seeing a, TV documentary about him, which I'm sure you've seen. I can't, he came out about <clears throat> 10 years ago. He, he was in this old musical being interviewed. Um, yeah, Imaginary Man, it was called. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there were pictures mm. of him walking by the river, of course, by the Thames, mm. in, in a, a really nondescript overcoat. Like, he just looked like a guy, a North London bloke in his 60s, walking by the river, just yeah. lonely uh, and ordinary, where he's well, anything but ordinary. Well, there's another thing perhaps they have in common is they are, I think they are quite alone, both Bob and Ray. I don't think, maybe Ray doesn't allow people in and maybe Bob, no one's got the courage to join him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they are quite alone, I think. Yeah, and I think they write about, when they write about loneliness, you really know. You know, it's, it's mm. a different kind of cosmic uh, Well, loneliness. Waterloo Sunset is one of the yeah. loneliest songs I've ever heard. It's also probably one of the great songs he ever wrote. But it's that idea of just watching people on, on Waterloo. I always imagine he's on his own looking out of a window, just somewhere near. I don't know why that's the image I always have, but, you know, millions of people swarming like flies around Waterloo Underground. And also well, there's a dreamlike quality to that song. And this is something else they have in common is I think Ray at his best created strange dreamlike imagery in his lyrics. And I think Bob, well, my favorite versions of Bob is when his lyrics are almost like dreams of other people. He said that in an interview once in the 60s that his songs are set in dreams, but not his own dreams in other people's dreams. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> Like I was listening to um, Ballad of a Thin Man and that is just a fever dream of, a, isn't it? Like a, a feverish nightmare of a reporter or whoever Mr. Jones is. Mm. Just these frightening images of a world he doesn't understand and Bob Dylan's face somehow visiting him in a nightmare saying something is happening. <laughs> and I think a lot of Ray's lyrics at their best exist in a sort of dream state. Yeah. I think you know, so. Save me from this squeeze. <laughs> Yeah, somebody said to me, or rather I said to somebody, I think, on this podcast, why does Dylan play these shitty venues like Wembley Arena? You know, why not play something like the Palladium on a regular basis, you know, where where it's got good sound? And, and they said, yeah, but he, he needs to be, he needs to play big venues to know, they said, you know, just to know that he still can pull people in. But in a way, it might actually reflect on the loneliness sort of theme. Mm. Like, 
really needs like I, 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 when you see Ray Davis sing Waterloo Sunset, I've been lucky enough. To, I saw him at the Royal Festival Hall uh, maybe three years ago, and when he sang Waterloo Sunset, uh, you know, with his band, not the Kinks, um, mm. everybody immediately started to sing along this this song about loneliness, and he yeah. just lit up, and and I, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm you know I was. I don't know why I, I was I was weeping sort of instantly, and I think I think most people were. There was I don't, it was yeah. it was inexplicable, but it's something to do with loneliness and all, yet all being together. He was encouraging us to sing. I find well, the sound of a crowd singing along to a performer impossibly moving. Mm. There's a a live version of um, "Hungry Heart" where Bruce Springsteen just lets the crowd do the entire first verse. There's a, a, um, a John Prine live album, which I've listened to recently, where he just lets them take over. And it's just it's so moving when they do it. When it's spontaneous. I think it's, it's something, so yeah. I think also it's something to do with songwriting is quite a lonely exercise. You know, you're on your own. You've got to kind of disappear within yourself. And it, it's not a communal thing. And, and often it's kind of like reaching into your own diary to pick it out and make it rhyme. And it's strange and personal and, and like I say lonely and then I can only imagine being in a situation like that in Wembley or wherever and all these people are joining in with your loneliness it is moving yeah. and it must be deeply moving to um, experience from the performer's perspective as well Ray Davis on the other hand yeah I, I, he could sing more often when he's on stage <laughs> you know like he does a little bit too much of the pointing the mic towards the audience yeah and do you ever do you ever right. perform Dylan when you do uh, live gigs? Um, yeah, I do, but I'm very <laughs> very careful. Like it's confessing. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like my name that. is Danny Horn. I'm a Dylan apologist. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I'm always quite. I don't know if I deserve to. It's like how Dylan, when he did the Sinatra stuff, he felt like he'd finally earned the right to do that. And I don't think I've earned the right to sing Bob Dylan songs yet. But I do. I do um, abandon love. Uh, and occasionally I do, um, what's it called? Ooh-wee, ride me high. Uh, you ain't going nowhere. Yes, yeah, it. <laughs> Had a little brain freeze there. Yes, you ain't going nowhere. So why abandoned love? Yes. I'm just going to poke at this obviously painful, uh, sore wound of yours. Was it, is it because <laughs> it, it reminds you of some bad love affair or just you think it's a great song? I think it's a great song. I heard it on Biograph and I just couldn't believe why he had, left that off the album but kept Mozambique on it mm. and I like Mozambique <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah so unique and all <laughs> yeah and I uh I don't know so it's difficult to articulate why something specifically goes inside of you and rips out your heart and and shows it to you that song does for some reason it just seems so specific and so vague at the same time and so raw it's got the same raw quality that sarah has you can almost see him staring at her while he sings it and it's it's a classic dylan song where he's simultaneously being a wounded puppy and also being a venomous snake isn't he i mean he's being he's saying you know i'm so sad and fuck you at the same time. You know, uh, let me feel your love one more time before I abandon it. I mean, it's it's really given someone the uh, the one-two there, isn't it? It's, it's... There's, a, there's also, there's a couple of lines in there which are maybe a bit too close for comfort. There's everybody's wearing a disguise to hide what they've got left behind their eyes, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, Dylan's worn many disguises. And also, I've, I've been deceived by the clown inside of me. You know, yeah. I mean, when, when John Lennon was writing... Bob Dylan parodies he would he would you know always insert the word clown 
and yeah. things like that. And maybe yeah. he just well, thought that was a bit too obvious. I don't know. It is the ragged clown, isn't it? It's that yeah. Chaplin-esque figure that he um, he probably, you know, it will always be within him. Like every version of ourselves is still in there somewhere and no one's had more versions of themselves than Bob Dylan. And all of those live within him, I guess. And that Chaplin-esque boy is still, you know, he still probably feels that way sometimes when he's exposed on a stage. And, and it's rare to hear him refer to himself as that, but he does in Tambourine Man and he does in Abandoned Love. And the notion of identity is something that you play with quite a lot in your in your music. Um, yeah. I'm thinking particularly of the two songs that you've released recently. Yeah, yeah. It was the idea that, you know, there, there is a version of yourself for the world, um, for those closest to you, and then the version that only you see. I'm very interested in that. That's sort of Eastern philosophy. And I think Dylan was probably also interested in that. He talks about the I Ching or the I Ching a lot. Do you believe in a, in a, in a, in a, sol, a solitary true self or do you believe that we're all different versions of something all the time? Um, I don't know. I think we're probably always manifesting something new. I, I, I think identity... Well, you know, it's that the existential idea that we're all one creature, one, one sort of experience, uh, looking at each other subjectively. You know, we're all made out of atoms that are all interconnected and we're just experiencing them one mm. at a time. And that's I did a video where I decided to have lots of different people sing the lyrics to my song because, you know, they might as well, because we are all just basically one organism. There is that slightly pretentious idea I was trying to chase, I think. It's a beautiful idea and it works really well. We're talking about the video to, to Boy Awake. And I, what I find really moving is when you see children miming to, to lip syncing to your song, you know, because that really <laughs> is cohesive and kind of all embracing and it's it's not just a couple of your friends that you got in touch but there's a proper cross-section of people in that video it's wonderful oh, thank you yeah i thought i mean i i thought it'd be funny if i got a four-year-old girl to sing the lowest part of the song you know, yeah yeah the bassier part <laughs> is there is there any dylan song that you think i really can't get behind this is there is there one that you've maybe just listened to a few lyrics and thought ugh can't be getting on with no, I, I, I struggle with some of the um can you cook and sew make flowers grow yes. sort of stuff i just think well come on where were you here where, where was your head at when you wrote this this is not the uh, liberal-minded person who wrote mummy you've been on my mind about these independent female forces yeah i always but, have trouble with uh, those lines as well although he's being honest i guess that's what he you know i tell myself that's, well, that's what he it. needed at that time and he's just yeah putting it out there it's all part of the story, isn't it? I mean, that's the great thing is, is you've got to think of Dylan's entire career. You can't think of you can't think of it as good parts and bad parts. It's all part of the rich tapestry of his output, which is one of the most phenomenal, certainly in, in modern pop culture, but I think in history. I noticed on your IMDb page, <laughs> I'm sorry that I noticed this, I just, but it's the biog is written by somebody called Jude Quinn. That's interesting. Which, yeah, I don't know if if anyone's listening has got has got that reference. But are you are you a fan of that film? I think that film has some great ideas in it. I, I'm not there. We're talking about. I'm yeah. not there. Yeah, uh, I think if you're going to do a film about Bob Dylan, that's the way to do it. I think it falls apart with some of the scripts and some of the performances. I don't know why they couldn't cast. There's some of the worst British accents I've ever heard in a film in, in there. Like, <laughs> It's terrible. So, like all the parts set in sort of London hotel rooms with um, Kate Blanchett, who's obviously phenomenal in it. Just some dreadful hokey acting and some dodgy delivery of lines. But um, what I do think that film does amazingly is 
gets inside of the ideas or the idea of Dylan rather than trying to be him. And I think, I mean, God, I think Charlotte Gainsbourg is just wonderful in that film. And she's one of my favourite actors anyway, but particularly her parts with, with Heath Ledger really moved me. I think, I mean, I just feel uncomfortable watching Christian Bale try and do that, basically an impression of Bob Dylan. I didn't, I didn't think that one was so good, but... His Born Again perm is, is quite interesting as well. Yeah, it, it is. It gets to that point. Yeah. But I remember seeing it at the time and thinking, right, something has been decided here. This is how you do biopics now. We're going to have no more... Um, I've not even seen the Ray Charles film, Ray, but as far as I can understand, it's a chronological, fairly linear telling of yeah. Ray Charles's life. Similarly, um, Walk the Line. I don't know what happened to the eye. Um, you know, but when, then you get to things like I'm Not There and even Love and Mercy, the film about Brian Wilson. Which I really and like. Dana and John Cusack. Yeah. I adore that film. But but both that and I'm not there seem to throw chronology into the blender and just say, you know what? We're going to mix things up a bit here. We're going to play with identity. We're going to play with different actors playing the same part. We're not going to necessarily do it in order, but we're going to tap into a truth about this person's music. And I think both films succeed magnificently. Yeah, absolutely. Through not being chronological and um and a bit too worthy. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I I think um Going back to that idea of identity, how there is no such thing as one person, you know, one version of yourself. And Dylan's such mm. a, I feel like his whole career, he's been doing a piece of performance art trying to show us that idea. You know, he not only does he, you know, have a new kind of hat on, he's got a whole new fucking personality. When he turns up yeah. in white at the Isle of Wight, he talks differently. Um, he plays different songs. He behaves differently. He's got. He seemingly has a different outlook on life. And this is after uh, we saw him with long hair screaming screaming out like a rolling stone and looking emaciatedly skinny yeah the same thing with uh with rolling thunder uh, and there was the bit where the uh, you know the embittered director of the uh of the backstage uh you know the, the we now realize completely fictional <laughs> yes uh, director and my one of my favorite bits he says oh you know and so and bob saw the way that i would smoke my cigarette with the the you know through the between the, the third and the fourth fingers yeah and uh, then he started what can i say he started to do it and then they show bob dylan doing that but he just happens to be doing yeah. it but they've they've constructed yeah. a completely false the European way. Story. I love that. Yeah, yeah, the European way. Like, yeah, the oh, European way. That's right. <laughs> I've never seen anyone smoke a cigarette in no. my life. European no, but it was so funny. It, it's so, when you, the more you uncover of, of that, what Scorsese did in that film, which I'm sure with, obviously with Dylan's contrivance, because they've got Dylan doing these interviews where he's talking about Scarlet Rivera and her snakes mm. and, mm. and all the various people on the tour and Roger McGuinn was bugging everybody's rooms and yeah. Just, just making stuff up. It's, and he says, I, I contain multitudes as well. He doesn't, he doesn't, he quotes Whitman and he, and he says, you know, he, yeah, and he just he, that's that, a little, just a reference he just throws off, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that line was on his mind around that period. I wonder if that's when yes, he started probably. writing the ideas for that down. I, I love that documentary because the problem with any work of documentary, whether or not they're trying to tell the truth, is there's always a narrative that they're trying to sort of crowbar in there. They're trying to wrestle in as, uh, you know, the filmmaker's own perception of the truth. And really there is no truth. It's just a bunch of chaotic things happening with a camera pointing at things. And, and I think that's why that documentary is so interesting and why it succeeds so much is that they just decide, you know, nothing is real, but also everything is. So let's, let, let's just lean into that. I'd, I'd narrate uh documentaries and uh they're always completely fake you know that you can see that they've 
that they've set stuff up. But if, if a well-modulated uh, voice, as, as Woody Allen says uh, in that uh, the sketch about God and, uh, and is it Isaac who sacrifices his son? And Russell, Abraham. Abraham. Oh, yeah, God, God said Abraham, Abraham killed Abraham. his son, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, he's just about to, uh, you know, kill his son. And then God says, uh, hold on a second. And he says, but you told me I'm supposed to. And and, uh, and God d- delivers the punchline in the Woody Allen thing and says, some people will do anything as long as it comes from a deep, well-modulated voice. <laughs> and that's that's what most documentaries do. You know, there's the voice of God, as they call it in documentary making. Um, yeah, the so Morgan Freeman voice. The Morgan Freeman voice. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the great thing about Dylan. There's no, there's none of that. There's none of that voice in his songs and or or in the documentary or you know. No, he, he completely rips something apart and looks at it the opposite way through a mirror, doesn't he? I mean, he and then presents that as his evidence. I just think that's a much more interesting way to look at the world. I understand you once played the Royal Albert Hall, or maybe more than once. No, just the once. It was to do with uh, playing Ray Davis in Sunny Afternoon. Um, There was a night, I mean, it was some sort of magic of the musicals thing. It felt very strange to be representing that at all. But uh, we were going to come on as the Kinks and play Lola uh, towards the end of the night. And during a sound check, um, the guy who played Dave Davis, Ray's brother, is an actor called Oliver Hall, who's the only person I've ever met who can talk about Bob Dylan like I can, uh, well, other than you guys now. <laughs> um, he, we both kind of choked up whilst we were doing the sound check on the stage, thinking about you know those all those recordings, the uh, 66 Royal Albert Hall. We were standing where he stood, and it's such a beautiful venue anyway, it completely overwhelms you. And he texts his dad, who's also a Dylan fan, saying, Dylan, Dad. And then right before, about 10 minutes before we were going to go on, there's a terrible signal in the Albert Hall as well. Terrible signal. And uh, his dad's, and I think Oliver has a bit of dyslexia. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. And his dad replied saying, thought that said Dylan dead for a second. That's the text that he got. And then he just looked at me and went, Bob Dylan's dead. And we we couldn't get any Wi-Fi to Google it. Oh, my God. <laughs> we were freaking out, running around as the kinks. It was like something from Hard Day's Night, running around the back of the Albert Hall in our kinks outfit and our guitars, trying to get an <laughs> internet connection to find out Bob Dylan had died. And then we couldn't. And we said, well, we just got to go on and do this. We'll do it for Bob. And then <laughs> I even turned to Oliver and said, do you think we should announce it? <laughs> oh, my and God. And he was like, no. No, let, let them have let them That's have tonight. <laughs> and then we came out, we ran outside and started looking it up like Bob Dylan dead. And it just said, you know, every search result was like Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead. And, and the dead, yeah, Dylan, Bob and, Dylan. and the dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, there's nothing here. And then we looked at his text message again and then <laughs> realized, and well, yeah, so we feel like we've had a dry run for when that happens now. We, we've it's- kind of emotionally already gone through it. Did you ever hear that story about the, the teenage girl that was in the middle of a therapy session and she got a text from her mum saying, what do you want from life? And she normally would turn her phone off uh, during her therapy sessions, but this came through and she sort of was quite moved. And she said to her therapist, I'm really sorry, sorry, my phone's on, but this might be pertinent. My mum's just texted and said, what do you want from life? And she, and she said, well, let's, let's talk about this. You know what? Let's talk about this. this is a really good, this is where we're going anyway. Let's have a proper conversation about what you want from life and, and, and how you're going to achieve those goals. And they spent a few minutes talking about it. And then another text came through from her mum and said, sorry, sorry, autocorrect. What do you want from little? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. That's a kind of divine chaos, isn't it? Yeah. 
you know. And he's still creative. That's what's amazing. You know, he's, he's 80 years old nearly and he's still managing to surprise people. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you say in the, um, in the documentary? You know, life is about being creative. He's, mm. He said it's not about finding out who you are, right? It's about Yeah, it's not life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And I yeah. just love that. That was a sort of just, oh, that's a, that's a mantra for me ever since I heard him say that. Yeah. It's not yeah. about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And it goes back to that idea of identity, which I'm always interested about anyway. It's maybe mm. why I like acting. It's the idea that, you know, when, when you're truly doing it right, you aren't pretending to be someone, you are that person, you know? And, yeah. Well, I don't know if you've ever read any Judith Butler, but she's no. uh, an academic who's written at great length about identity. And she said, I remember I studied it when I was doing an English degree, but she said very much what we alluded to earlier on, that there is no such thing as your own true self. Every persona you have is truthful and they're all performances. Yes. That they're all performances re- reflecting the surroundings you're in, reflecting the audience you're playing to. Um, and she uses the metaphor of drag to say that, you know, Drag is a series of performative and performed, rehearsed gestures to yeah. approximate a person. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, yeah. you know, he mentions in uh, uh, I Contain Multitudes, he mentions old queens twice. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, all the old queens, all the old queens. I thought, wow, that's, you're really hitting that. Why are you hitting that mm. so hard? Well, you look at that and you look at the, the white face makeup and the, all that stuff and you start to, to see a kind of through line. There is a through line. It's all been a big performance, this whole career, you know, from, yeah. from, from dressing up like Woody Guthrie to um, dressing up like Johnny Cash to the yeah. white makeup, the most sort of literal representation of that. Mm. And then, you know, playing a character called Alias, it all seems so thought through, you know. I don't know if it is or not, but it seems like it certainly could be. The thing that I could never understand, when we, when we did our uh, film uh, episode where we went through all the Bob Dylan films, and I was very hard on him, you know, as an actor, uh, saying what he was a just terrible uh, until he, sort of t- towards the end until um, uh, masculine and anonymous I thought he 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 was getting it but I I realized in the months that have passed that I was I was really wrong because he wasn't he was doing something else he was doing something way beyond what we call acting mm. you know I don't know what he was doing I still don't know it but I respect it now well he's a lot like brex isn't he bob dylan i think there's a lot of similarities with their approach to um uh performance and not just through theater but through just being and and certainly through uh, performing music it it's that kind of earthiness whilst also having a head in the sky um sort of gesturing and painting crude uh archetypal pictures and by doing that, actually being more complex than any nuance you could find in a real person could be. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded on Source Connect Now, stuck inside Immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Henry Porter. Digital imaging by Finn Guides. Music is by Sam Hay. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I'll go along with this charade until I can think my way out. I know it was all a big joke, whatever it was all about. Someday, maybe, I'll remember to forget. Hello, everybody. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. And we're from Audio Judo, the music discovery podcast. If you're curious about new music or want to learn something new about old music, then start right here with us. Uh, Here's a little sample of what we do. 
And tonight we are talking about Pink Floyd's A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy. Matthew and the Atlas. Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Yes, we are. Awaken My Love by Childish Gambino. Boston by the band Boston. Oh, yeah. I, for sure, was never cool enough to listen to the Smiths. Like, I feel like there was, like, this weird entry fee that you had to pay in coolness. Have you seen the movie Less Than Zero? Yes. It kind of costs about that. Oh, okay, good. Um, Today we have a very special interview with a legendary singer, Fish. How you doing, Fish? I'm doing fine, Kyle. Hello, Matthew. Yeah, it's just when I got a Skype call from Randy Valentine, it's like, you know, like, yeah, I think we'll tell that one to fuck off. <laughs> one of our listeners recently wrote to me and said that uh, he was referring to you and I. He said, I like the cantankerous Gen Xer meets a less grumpy millennial thing you guys have. <laughs> so that's it. If you liked, uh, liked a little sample of Audio Judo there, uh, please give us a listen. And if you love music, come check us out at audiojudo.com or wherever podcasts are podcasted.